This week, Judge Isger tells Elsa Mesa and Kingfisher Midstream to, quote, get this thing resolved or face a disaster. Congress advances 5G Spectrum Act, two surprise billing deals. PG&E debtors file RSA incorporating $13.5 billion TCC settlement. We're on all this and, as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the week in New York. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high-yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Connor Skelding. And I'm legal analyst Karen Lund. Later this episode, the LATAM team will give us updates on Digicel, Grupo Posadas, TV Azteca, and CFE. It's Sunday, December 15th. During the first two days of the trial conducted earlier this week in Alta Mesa's adversary proceeding against Kingfisher Midstream, Judge Marvin Isger admonished the parties to, quote, get this thing resolved, warning that if not, his ruling would be a, quote, disaster. At trial, Judge Isger made clear his view that Alta Mesa's and Kingfisher's assets should be sold jointly. The trial followed a brief telephonic hearing in which Judge Isger informed the parties that he had made a determination to grant Kingfisher's motion for summary judgment in respect of the gathering agreement, holding that the agreement runs with the land. Instead, the trial focused on certain claims, including seeking a declaratory judgment that the gathering agreements are subject to rescission. After, quote, Hearing the court's message loud and clear, the Alta Mesa debtors filed an emergency motion on Wednesday to stay the adversary proceeding so they could pursue a joint sale. Judge Isker granted the motion at a hearing on Thursday. In a statement filed ahead of that hearing, Kingfisher asked the court to condition the litigation stay on AMH's pursuit of a joint sale of AMH's and Kingfisher's assets. In rejecting Kingfisher's proposal, the court indicated that it would not preclude the debtors from considering bids for the purchase of Alta Mesa assets only, despite the court's views that a joint sale is, quote, better, and that pursuing an AMH-only sale would be a, quote, foolish path. Riarg was following Capitol Hill this past week as certain bills making their way through Congress could have significant effects on certain credits we're following. Until Sats, 9.5% notes to 2023 moved up 3.5 cents on the dollar Wednesday, according to Trace, after the Senate Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation approved the 5G Spectrum Act, defeating an amendment that would have increased the potential payout to the U.S. government and reduced it for satellite companies. The current text of the bill states that the Federal Communications Commission, quote, shall deposit not less than 50% in the Treasury of, quote, gross proceeds, defined as proceeds from the auction before compensation for and relocation of existing operators. In supporting the bill, Senator Roger Wicker, Republican from Mississippi, stated that, quote, the choice we make today is whether Congress will play a role in deciding how these very considerable auction revenues are spent. In response to an amendment proposed by Senator Brian Schatz, Democrat of Hawaii, seeking to define the amount of proceeds allocated to satellite companies, Wicker urged a no vote, claiming the amendment would auction less spectrum and result in delay of the auction by six months. Wicker added that his goal is to, quote, pay satellite companies only so much as is required to satisfy the law and ensure that all parties are in support. Also on Capitol Hill last week, House Energy and Commerce Committee Chairman Frank Pallone, Democrat from New Jersey, 
Ranking member Greg Walden, Republican from Oregon, and Senate Health Committee Chairman Lamar Alexander, Republican from Tennessee, announced a deal to bring together two of the three pieces of surprise billing legislation currently making their way through Congress. The deal would, quote, end surprise billing of patients by creating a new system of dispute resolution. That includes arbitration, provide nearly $20 billion for five years of funding for the nation's 1,400 community health centers, and lower the cost of prescription drugs and other medical services by requiring transparency and competition, Alexander said in a statement. Language has yet to be released. Specific to air ambulance bills, the summary states that patients would be, quote, held harmless from surprise air ambulance medical bills, adding that patients are only required to pay the in-network cost-sharing amount for out-of-network air ambulances. Air ambulances are barred from sending patients balance bills for more than the in-network cost-sharing amount. And days later, the House Ways and Means Committee announced its own surprise billing legislation proposal following an agreement between committee chairman Richard Neal, Democrat of Massachusetts, and its ranking member Kevin Brady, Republican from Texas. Language for their bill has similarly yet to be released. However, a summary indicated that patients, quote, will be held harmless for cost sharing at the in-network rate for surprise bills from out-of-network providers. In addition, it proposes a system under which parties would first try to, quote, work out differences without interference, only after failure to agree would they undergo, would they undergo uh, price, quote, reconciliation. The bill, notably, makes no mention of air ambulance surprise billing. The PG&E debtors filed an amended plan Thursday incorporating the terms of their recently disclosed RSA with the Official Committee of Tort Claimants, or TCC, the Consenting Fire Victims, and Abrams Capital Management and Knighthead Capital Management as shareholder proponents. The amended plan, quote, reflects PG&E's settlements with all major groups of wildfire claimants and keeps PG&E on track to achieve regulatory approval and bankruptcy court confirmation prior to the June 30th, 2020 deadline to participate in the state's wildfire fund, according to a press release. The settlement would resolve all remaining wildfire claims, including individual claims, at a value of approximately $13.5 billion to be paid into a trust for claimants, 50% in cash, and 50% in reorganized PG&E common stock. Elliott Management Corp. criticized the contemplated plan, saying in a news release that it would not satisfy the requirements of AB 1054, the law passed by the California State Legislature, which, among other things, would create the state's wildfire fund and benefit shareholders at the expense of other stakeholders. PG&E maintained in its press release that the plan would satisfy all requirements of the law and described the Elliott-backed plan as, quote, a last-ditch effort to derail the wildfire victim settlements and force costly, uncertain, and protracted litigation. The release further asserts that the competing plan, quote, would enrich those firms backing it by charging interest rates on debt that are both above market rate and higher than required by law, rather than putting those ratepayer dollars towards safety, reliability, and clean energy investments. The plan is conditioned on approval of the RSA with the ad hoc group of subrogation claimants. Judge Dennis Montelli took the debtor's motion for approval of that RSA under advisement at a December 4th hearing, with the debtors and subrogation claimants subsequently asking the court to defer from ruling on the motion until after December 13th. 
Correspondingly, the Tubbs Fire State Court plaintiffs and defendant PG&E jointly requested a two-week continuance of the trial in the California North Bay Fire Coordination Proceeding in order to finalize the, quote, tentative settlement in the Chapter 11 proceedings. Judge Andrew Chang granted the continuance at an uncontested hearing. The parties stated in their request that there is, quote, uniform agreement that good cause exists for a continuance, as it may, quote, enable a settlement which dispenses the need for a six- to eight-week trial. Adventist Health, the United States, and the state of California, plus the PG&E debtors, also agreed to stay their estimation dispute pending consideration of the debtors' RSA with the TCC. And turning to the island of Puerto Rico, during Wednesday's omnibus hearing in the Title III cases of the Commonwealth and its instrumentalities, Judge Laura Taylor Swain heard a fulsome overview of the mediation team's interim report and a general update on the mediation process from the mediation team leader, Judge Barbara Hauser, followed by argument from the PROMESA Oversight Board, AFAF, and various creditor parties. Judge Swain indicated that the court would be issuing revised orders and notices with respect to scheduling and sequencing certain disputed issues. The Oversight Board and AFAF also provided the court with status updates during Wednesday's hearing. The Oversight Board updated the court on mediation generally, along with the status of the Puerto Rico Industrial Development Co.'s restructuring support agreement and anticipated Title VI filing, the reformulation of the debtor's alternative dispute resolution proposal, and certain developments on the status of plans to execute the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority's restructuring support agreement and the long-term concession of its transmission and distribution system. AFAF provided a general report on its status and activities, including a breakdown of public disaster relief funding and disbursements from the Federal Emergency Management Agency, HUD, and other entities. AFAF Executive Director Omar Marrero stated during a Tuesday press conference that multiple iterations of the Commonwealth Plan of Adjustment would not be surprising, given the size and complexity of the Title III cases, the range of creditor classes, and precedents in Detroit and other municipal bankruptcies. Quote, we expect changes to the plan of adjustment as originally filed. Our position is to ensure that any changes that impact the plan of adjustment are beneficial to the people of Puerto Rico. And what's beneficial to the people of Puerto Rico? Exiting bankruptcy and the restructuring process while protecting the most vulnerable. And according to a report published Monday by, Puerto Rico, by the Puerto Rico Comptroller's Office, the watchdog's audit of the Public Buildings Authority has been hobbled by the legal challenge of PBA leases, filed jointly by the PROMESA Oversight Board and the Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors in the Title III Court last year. That was in the watchdog entity's audit report. The Comptroller's Office issued a, quote, opinion of abstention in the audit report, citing a, quote, limitation of reach due to the adversary complaint filed in December 2018, which seeks a declaratory judgment that the PBA leases are disguised financing transactions rather than true leases. The Oversight Board subsequently filed a Title III petition for PBA in connection with the proposed Commonwealth Plan of Adjustment. Other top stories last week were... Letter of credit and surety claims against McDermott may be triggered by bankruptcy filing, but crystallization and size of potential claim likely determined by business considerations. 24-hour fitness struggles to navigate industry headwinds, expects EBITDA stabilization in 2020, 
improvement in 2021 following sharp second half of 2019 declines. And Jones Energy announces entry into definitive merger agreement to be acquired by Revolution Resources in all cash transaction valued at $202 million. Transaction expected to close in the first quarter of 2020. Jim's next as usual with the week ahead. And thank you. Good morning from the clear and cold Houston where it's brutal and subarctic 50 degrees. You know, a lot of people here complain about the intense humidity we have in the summer. Myself, I love it being a proud son of South Georgia, but I can understand how, I, I don't know, you know, a Californian maybe would not like it at all and just wouldn't really enjoy it here. Anyways, there is a surprising lot going on this week, most of it of the legal variety and with many of those having the word omnibus attached to it. Such as Monday, December 16th, we have aforesaid omnibuses for FES and Jimboree and also a DS and confirmation hearing in Acosta. Tuesday, December 17th, proof of claim hearing in Insys, confirmation hearing in Fusion, and omnibus hearings in, get ready for this, AMP, Jack Cooper, Lehman, Highland Capital, Weinstein, and Aceto. And you're probably wondering right now, well, what about PG&E? Your phone, like mine, probably pinged Friday night with news that the governor of the Golden State, Governor Gavin Newsom, has threatened to block the PG&E plan because PG&E, quote, violated the public trust, unquote. That's from Gavin Newsom, Governor Gavin Newsom, whose dad was a judge and worked for Getty Oil and who was given his start in politics by the legendary Willie Brown. Of course, Gavin had previously made a bundle in the production of fermented grape beverages, helped there by Gordon Getty, who inherited all of J. Paul's oil billions and worked as a philanthropist and was a classical music composer. Anyway, Gavin's venture is called Plump Jack Wineries. Plump Jack, I first thought he said Pump Jack, like what you see out here in Technus, but no, it's Plump Jack, reference to Sir John Falstaff, who was comic relief in a bunch of Shakespeare play. Shakespeare's plays, and I take it Plump Jack's output is more your high-end type of swig. It don't come in a cart and call my buddy over at the Cajun place. He'd never heard of it. Anyways, back to PG&E. There's a wildfire estimation claim hearing. Wednesday, December 18th, DS hearing at Barney's. Hearing in Windstream and Omnibuses in Verity and Emerge. Thursday, December 19th, Omnibus hearings in Feb Forever 21, White Star, EFH, and Purdue. Hearing in South Cross and a motion to dismiss in, Fe- in Verity. And that's just the start of it. What's going on on Thursday? For the rest, just take a look at our Ford Weekly, which is released early every Monday morning. Friday, December 20th. Well, we made it. Looks like we have a second day hearing in Dean Foods. Oral arguments in Fury and a stay relief hearing in Weatherford. And happy weekend to all and to all a good night. And passing it over now to whoever gets it next. Thanks, Jim. Now here's the LATAM team with updates on Digicel, Grupo Posadas, TV Azteca, and CFE. Thanks. I'm Kyle Owusu, Senior Distressed Debt Analyst and LATAM Team Lead, and I'm here with my fellow analysts Catherine Wiegert and Brandon Liu to talk about Caribbean-focused telecom operator Digicel, Mexican hotel operator Grupo Posadas, Mexican cable provider TV Azteca, and Mexican utility company CFE. So let's kick this off. I'll remove my moderator hat for now and get ready to answer questions about Digicel. Awesome. 
Uh, so Kyle, Digicel had its second quarter earnings call a few weeks ago. What were some of your main takeaways from that? I think people are focused on the company's cash balance. Management said that the company expects to end the year with cash between 100 million and 120 million, which the uh, executive said is around the minimum cash balance needed to run the business. The company's cash balance at the end of September was around 180 million, and as of around November 20th, the cash balance was roughly 110 million. Got it. And uh, digital has been pretty, uh, you know, pretty popular topic for some of our podcasts, and I think you've mentioned on recent other podcasts uh, that. Uh, the company has about $1.3 billion of debt coming due in 2021. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. But let's not also forget that there is uh, a little over $60 million coming due in November 2020 related to the holdout notes from the last exchange. It's not a large amount, but with the cash balance dwindling, um, absent an improvement in the business or an influx of cash, the the holdout uh, 2020 bondholders might face another exchange. Got it. And I see those bonds have been uh, quoted around 68 to 70. Um, Digicel Limited, the, the 2021 bonds are quoted around 73, with the Digicel Limited 2023s are quoted around 51. Uh, what's what's the discrepancy there? What do you think is explain explains that? And is it you know is it kind of just a function of one bond maturing before another or I mean they're they're peri pursue right yeah they are peri and uh, you know both bonds were trading around 90 until um, Q1 2018 and then the spread began to widen going into 2019 and Basically, I think it's a function of what happened in the last exchange. So you had um, twenty notes due 2020 and 2022, and those were swapped into 2022 and 2024 notes. Um, but the 2022 note holders ended up getting primed by about $1 billion of debt. And although nobody knows for sure how the company is going to deal with the upcoming 21 maturity, the market seems to be pricing in the probability of a similar event at the Digital Limited box where the 21s will get treated much better than the 23s. And so I think that explains some of the reason for the gap. Also, you have about $1.9 billion of debt coming due in 2022 at the DGL1 and DGL2 boxes. So even though if you are long the 23s, you're closer to the Caribbean assets because the DG, the DL box is structurally senior to DGL1 and T, DGL2 as it relates to those assets, There's that's still a lot of debt that comes due before you um, at a company that's struggling to generate cash flow. Got it. And uh, are there any level, levers to pull here? So it's hard to say. I mean, um, there are... Uh, there, there is rather, sorry, a, a dispute ongoing with uh, French telecom operator Orange. Um, Orange has escrowed uh, a little under three hundred fifty million uh, of cash um, related to that dispute um, over alleged anti-competitive practices in the French West Indies. In March, we reported that Digicel expects an outcome um, at the end of 2019 or the beginning of 2020. I'm not sure whether that has changed. We haven't really had an update on that. Um, I'm assuming that because the dispute is regarding practices in the French West Indies, that proceeds would 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 go to one of the Caribbean entities. Um, should they end up going to Digicel, um, there's also the Digicel Pacific business. Uh, there's under a hundred million of debt at that box, um, and as you both know, um, or as you know rather, sorry, we have difficulty getting 
up to date and accurate Digicel numbers. Um, but generally speaking, the Caribbean business represents around 80 to 80%, 85% of EBITDA. And latest fiscal year EBITDA was around 960 million. So very rough back of the envelope math suggests that if you capitalize the, the PNG EBITDA at a fairly conservative four to four times, that business could be worth at least 480 million. Um, and also, what a lot of people have pointed out is that um, Papua New Guinea, uh, Papua New Guinea's GDP could benefit from a plan to expand LNG exports. Um, however, based on our conversations, it's my understanding that it would be difficult to use any proceeds from a Digicel Pacific monetization to benefit um, Digicel Limited holders, given that PNG is part of the DGL1 security package. And also, more importantly, we haven't heard any speculation about PNG asset sales. Got it. All right. Thank you. That's that's a good uh, summary and catch up on, on Digicel. Uh, next, we're going to run through three situations, as you mentioned at the top uh, in Mexico, that our team has been exploring. Uh, Grupo Posadas, the hotel operator, uh, TV Azteca, the cable and broadcast provider, and uh, integrated utility company CFE. Uh, and in each case, we'll, we'll kind of look into why the credit has caught our attention. Uh, we'll walk through the capital structure of each of them and then also highlight key issues for investors. Uh, so let's kick things off with uh, the most distressed of the bunch. That's Grupo Posadas. Uh, what does the company do and what, Kyle, um, and why is it on our radar now? Grupo Posadas is a hotel operator in Mexico with about 15% market share. Uh, we've been eyeing the company's 7 and 7 eighths bonds due 2022 because Mexico's, Mexico's growth so far in 2019 has been subpar and uh, Posadas operations being a hotel operator, they're just levered to the, the Mexican economy. Um, the bonds have fallen over 10 points in the last month and are trading in the high 80s to yield just under 15%. Got it. And what does their capital structure look like? So you've got um, about $408 million of total debt. Uh, the company, um, by our calculation, is just over seven times levered on a gross gross leverage basis. Um, most of the debt uh, represents the, the senior notes due 2022. There's also a $210 million Mexican peso secured bank loan um, that's issued by a subsidiary, Immobiliaria del Sudeste, uh, and that subsidiary whole owns um, one of their hotels. Got it. And why did their bonds fall, or why have they fallen recently, and what are some of the main issues that investors are looking at? Yeah, sure. So so just to clarify on that last question, question actually, specifically the hotel that the subsidiary owns is the uh, Fiesta Americana Merida Hotel. Um, but to get to, your, to get to this question, um, the bonds are declining alongside the company's performance. Um, like I said, it, it, the company's pretty levered um, to the Mexican economy and system-wide occupancy has been declining. EBITDA fell um, roughly 40, 41% year on year in the, the latest results. Um, and reported leverage is over three turns higher than it was in 2016. Um, the company's cash burn level suggests that if things really if things don't improve, um, liquidity going into 2022 could be tight. Um, one thing to note, though, is the the company's uh, receivables. So the company reported um, 
As of the third quarter, uh, 5.828 billion Mexican pesos of receivables related to its vacation property business. And the way that it works is Posada sells uh, these timeshare rights and members make um, initial payments of up to maybe 10% to 30% of the total price of the membership. And then there's monthly installment payments that are made comprising capital and interest um, on the unpaid purchase price. And, and um, so the, the company's permitted investment and lien definitions under the OM seem to contemplate some sort of receivables financing, uh, whereby Posadas transfers receivables from one subsidiary to an SPV, and then the SPV issues debt secured by receivables, receivables cash flows. Now, I'm not saying that's what Posadas will do. It does seem like something that um, would be sort of a... a, a, a a lever that they would pull if things got a lot worse. Um, but it is, it is worth noting that the, the, the documents seem to allow it. Um, and now I, we will pivot and I will ask, uh, I will ask a few questions on my own. Um, so let's talk about TV Azteca. Um, what does the, the company do and why is it on our radar now? Yeah, sure. So TV Azteca, as, as we kind of mentioned, is one of the world's two largest Spanish language television content producers. Uh, its revenue is mostly derived uh, from the sale of advertising at both the national and local levels, uh, less sales commissions uh, for, for those ad sales. Uh, the advertising sales um, comprise about 95% of the company's revenue in the most recent uh, third quarter results. Uh, we've, we've been looking at their $400 million uh, 8.25% senior unsecured bonds to 2024, which have fallen to the mid 80s to yield about 13% after trading in the mid to high 90s for most of 2019. Uh, and the company and Mexican broadcast, uh, both both TV Azteca and, and the Mexican um, broadcast television industry in general have, have been grappling with steep declines in government spending on on advertising and also just a general slowdown in the Mexican economy. Got it. So, what does the what does the capital structure look like? So the the capital structure is uh, so the company has about just under seven hundred million dollars of total debt. Uh, about four hundred million dollars of that is the eight point two five percent senior notes due in twenty twenty four. The company also has about just over two hundred million dollars of uh, of local notes, which are due in twenty twenty two. And but at the at the kind of at the level above those the the two bonds are a uh, a revolving credit facility with Banco Azteca, which comes due in this coming March in March twenty twenty. And I, I I just point out that um that this loan with Banco Azteca uh, TV Azteca is is part of Grupo Salinas, which also controls Banco Azteca, and and given that Banco Azteca is a related company, we, we would probably uh, expect you know, TV Azteca to be able to reach an agreement with this counterparty, given it's a, like I said, a related company to extend um, the credit facility's maturity if, if necessary. Uh, the company does have about $110 million of cash. Uh, so I think the company will probably assess its um, you know its cash position in March uh, to see what it wants to do with that um, with that maturity. Uh, we have EBITDA at about, uh, about 110 million, look at my notes, and that translates to about 5.2 times net leverage, about uh, 6.2 times leverage on a, on a gross basis. 
Got it. So it seems like, you know, you've got this near term maturity, but they're probably going to be able to push it out. Um, and I know you alluded to this before, but um, why have the bonds fallen and, and what are investors most concerned about? Yeah. So uh, revenue as the past few quarters has, has fallen quite a bit uh, in the third third most recent quarter it fell 14% year over year uh, in the second quarter it fell nearly 30% year over year in the first quarter it fell about 5% year over year um, both revenue and EBITDA have dropped rather significantly over the last year or so uh, and the company hasn't seen positive revenue growth since the third quarter of 2018 uh, and so as, as a result of declining EBITDA largely uh, that's been a, a big reason for you know le- net leverage has ticked up to over five times, about five point two times, like I said, compared to I think just under four times uh, at the beginning of the year. Um, the company has attributed most of its revenue and EBITDA declines, like I mentioned earlier, uh, to lower government spending on advertising and a slow Mexican economy in general, which has led many, also many private companies, uh, which comprise the majority of the company's clients, uh, to dial back on advertising spending and budgets. Um, also, uh, in- investors were are mostly concerned with, um, like I said, am. Amlo's the is or Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, the the Me- Mexican president who took office about a year ago. Uh, they're concerned with his loyalty to his fiscal austerity measures, um, as he's and he's he's cut the government's advertising budget in half compared with, uh, with compared with spending in the previous administration last year, uh, and then also the television television industry in general is is very cyclical. And the company's sales are dependent on on the performance of the Mexican economy as a whole, and, and they can be affected by periodic events, uh, such as they benefited a lot last year from the in twenty eighteen from the FIFA World Cup. So that's that's kind of been a big reason for the comparable uh, year over year declines. Got it. And what what's the company's plan if if the decline in government spending continues? Yeah. So we we spoke with a source uh, close to the company, and the management team has been looking to cut. Cost by by cut both cutting programs and possibly laying, laying off some staff, and the company expects to see these cost cutting effects, uh, and partially in the fourth in the fourth quarter results coming up, um, and but but more so even in the in the first half of twenty twenty. So they're hoping to reap some benefits and and see those effects translate to to their results uh, early next year. Um, the company may also expand its sports broadcasting production capacity and its live enter- and also capacity of production for live entertainment programs. Uh, and and th- with this, the company would seek to share production costs um, with companies that have the exhibition rights for these certain programs uh, and games. That would uh, that would help them as well um, in terms of sharing costs and leading towards, you know, hopefully lower costs and better margins. Uh, and then another potential avenue, which the company has you know less control over and they're, they're kind of just more hopeful for is the actual reversal of advertising sp- spending trends itself uh, by the government and by AMLO's administration. So what I mean by this is if, if AMLO's approval ratings continue to the to decline, uh, his administration may feel the need to spend more on advertising leading up to midterm elections, which are in 2021. Uh, and, and most recently, this has been the case. So, so you know, if this can if this continues, it, it definitely uh, you know, 
does seem like a possibility. Uh, according to polls, the president's approval rating uh, was over 85% in February, and more recently, at the end of November, was down to 68%. So, you know, you know we'll see, but the, the president and the administration may feel the need to, to up its advertising and its campaigning uh, leading up to those midterms if, if approval ratings continue to decline. Interesting. Okay, cool. Thanks for that uh, that overview. And let's go next to the utility company CFE. Um, so this is actually kind of an interesting case. Uh, the credit has popped up on investors' radars. Uh, why is that? Um, well, this situation, I think, caught people by surprise in a good way. Mexican credits were under substantial pressure last year during the election season, and I think that provided funds with an opportunity to get in at depressed prices. I think folks were really concerned about the populism of the AMLO administration and rising U.S. Treasury prices, but once we entered 2019, the market stabilized and a lot of political risks subsided. Mexican sovereign bonds have rallied over 10 points this year, along with bonds issued by CFE and Pemex. I think at one point, some investors uh, thought that the lingering debt concerns at Pemex and subsequent rating downgrades at Mexico would result in similar downgrades at CFE, but that hasn't been the case. So far, with respect to CFE, the story has really been about the positive uh, macro fundamentals offsetting political risk and investors differentiating between CFE and other Mexican quasi-sovereigns like Pemex, which carries a substantially heavier debt load. Got it. And what what is CFE's capital structure? Um, what does that look like? You want to walk us through? The company has about a six and a half billion of project finance debt. A very small portion of that, about eighty three million, is comprised of export credit agency facilities. It also has about one billion in bank debt, and uh, the balance is made up of new of numerous international bonds amounting to about nineteen billion in debt. Uh, Reorg estimates that net leverage. Uh, is under three times, and the company reported about $2.3 billion in cash at the end of the first quarter. So how does the, the capital structure contribute to CFE's risk profile? Well, CFE is clearly exposed to foreign exchange risk uh, since so much of its debt, approximately 55% of it, is denominated in U.S. dollars, while revenue is generated in local pesos. Um, this risk, however, is offset by the fact that CFE is a critical utility and receives significant support from the Mexican government. The company generates almost 80% of Mexico's consumed electricity. Its total debt also represents less than 2% of Mexico's GDP. To that end, default risk is clearly very low, and that is very obvious if you look at the current trading prices. CFE bonds due 2027 currently trade above par to yield about 4%, to yield about 4%. Um, Pemex bonds carrying the same maturity just by way of comparison are yielding close to 6%. And how is, uh, how is CFE affected by Mexico's new energy policy? When AMLO took office last year, he pledged to quote unquote socialize CFE and use it for public good. You would think that this would set off alarm bells, but it really hasn't. Mexico has essentially shifted away from using third-party energy providers in favor of uh, concentrating production at CFE. Um, climate advocates say that this hurts Mexico in the long run because the, because the government is investing in fossil fuels, uh, which is like the primary input for CFE electricity generation instead of clean energy. Um, the government, however, believes that this plan will reduce costs over time because they're not investing in new energy facilities like clean 
clean energy, et cetera. Uh, from a pr business perspective, this is obviously good for CFE because new policy clearly reduces competition. It also means that CFE might have to raise additional debt to fund projects, which exposes existing creditors to a potentially more levered, levered capital structure. But since the company has the support of the government, I'm not sure if the assumption of more debt will have a material impact on the company's existing bond prices or risk profile. There's always a risk that the bondholders could be primed if CFE, if CFE chooses to sell uh, more bonds, and if, especially if they decide to choose to sell uh, secured debt. But again, I think that this is highly unlikely. All of the company's current debt is unsecured in nature, so I don't see any reason why now the company would change strategy and opt, by, opt to change its uh, capitalist structure by introducing secured debt. Great, thank you. So I guess in 2020, we'll be on the lookout for um, a potential uh, exchange at Digicel. Whether or not that materializes remains to be seen. Um, at Posada, we'll see if the company continues to burn cash or if they can reverse that. Um, TV Azteca looks like, uh, again, trying to see if the current trends um, can be stabilized or if we see uh, continued um, deceleration of results. And then at CFE, it looks like we'll be uh, staying tuned to see how the government's new energy policy can potentially impact the business. Um, thank you so much, Brandon and Catherine, and thank you everyone for listening. Thank you all. And thank you, listener, for tuning in to another Reorg Weekly Review. As always, find all of our podcasts on the site's media page or iTunes or SoundCloud. This has been The Week in Reorg, and I'm Connor Skelding.